0: friends and welcome back to another sunday edition of the royal ramble i'm your host as always blaine the brain and it's been a very busy month for yours truly in fact it's only going to get busier as we get into the summer months you were without my company last weekend so i hope you didn't miss me too badly but i promise you that i have two big reviews coming at you later in the show and i'm presently lining up some interviews for future shows I also have the personality profiles for both post-wrestling's Braden Harrington and one of the godfathers of podcasting and an original host of live audio wrestling, Donnie De Silva, so look out for those. Yes, last week I was away due to a personal commitment. You know, Sundays are usually pretty hectic for me. It's when I usually try to cram all of my planning for the week into a single day. Most of the time it works, but sometimes life just gets in the way. I was actually at my nephew's second birthday party last Sunday. Uh, Two is a pretty fun age, and I think anyone with kids might relate to that. It's kind of when your motor skills start to take shape, so he's walking and playing and talking a bit more. And that reminds me, actually, I understand that today is a very special day as well. So before I forget, I wanted to wish all the mothers out there a very happy Mother's Day, and especially the ones who may be listening to this podcast or belong to my Facebook group. I know there's at least one. Hi, Sarah. But back to business, Sunday is usually the day that I fill with not only my podcast recording, but also my first workout of the week, and then meal prep and bi-weekly haircut. I'm also in the process of house hunting, and as anyone who lives in Toronto would tell you, just like the godfather would say about pimping, it ain't easy. The increasing rates and limited options have kind of forced my wife and I to look several hours outside of the city, but our options are kind of limited there as well. However, we are expecting to pack and move any week now, so if a week goes by and there's no podcast and no explanation, you should know why. But I promise that I will make it up to the three of you who listen to the show. With that, I wanted to talk about some of the big events that took place last week, which I didn't get to speak about as they happened. Actually, first, I did manage to squeeze in some New Japan this week. Their Best of the Super Juniors tournament is underway. Speedball Mike Bailey seems to be an early favorite to win at all, and his day one match with Hiromu Takahashi was great, though I've still seen much better from both guys, and I know we'll get better matches as time goes by. The WWE draft has also gone into effect, although I question the legitimacy of this thing. I guess I'd have to blame myself for once again giving them the benefit of the doubt and thinking this time might be different, but already you have people switching shows and interpromotional matches announced for the pay-per-view, and I'm like, what's the point? Not only do you have SmackDown talent competing to win a Raw title, but you also have SmackDown talent challenging for tag belts that are supposed to be exclusive to Raw, which they never actually made clear, and we're only a week into the draft. In fact, Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn, who are supposed to be exclusive properties of Raw, are set to appear on SmackDown this coming Friday, which is ridiculous. And then I could have sworn that the women's tag team champions Raquel Rodriguez and Liv Morgan were both drafted to the Raw brand, and they were also competing on SmackDown this week with no explanation provided. I really wish they would either take this thing seriously or just do away with the concept forever. It's just becoming wasted airtime every time they do a draft. Okay, rant over. Now let's get into the shows that I didn't get the chance to review last week. The UFC had another big pay-per-view with UFC 288. It was the return of Henry Cejudo to the Octagon. Overall, I didn't think it was a particularly exciting show, and certainly not one of the better UFC pay-per-views, but parts were enjoyable. There also weren't a lot of huge names, and they seemed to be solely depending on the main event as the draw. The men's featherweights opened things up on the main card as Crone Gracie took on the Canadian Charles Jourdain. I felt that the feeling-out process lasted a bit too long, and this one took a while to get going, and especially considering that they are two fairly unknown fighters, I'd have expected them to want to do a little more to make names for themselves, but neither really stood out in any way. Jourdain landed some heavy shots, but nothing that really did any kind of significant damage. But because Gracie didn't really have much response to them, it ended up securing the unanimous decision victory for Jordain. We got more featherweight action in the second fight between Mafsar Evloyev, and newcomer Diego Lopez. Lopez definitely tried to make a name for himself. He came out swinging right from the opening bell and landed some big strikes. In fact, I think there was a crowd chant for him at one point. Unfortunately, it seemed that he expended most of his energy in the opening round, allowing Evloyev to capitalize in rounds two and three. Lopez tried for a few submissions, but Evloev managed to escape them all and earn himself a unanimous decision. Jan Janan scored an impressive knockout over former strawweight champion Jessica Andrade, who seemingly walked right into a right hook, I would definitely call that a massive upset. The co-main event was contested between Bulal Mohamed and Gilbert Burns in the welterweight division. I'm not certain if this was a title or interim title fight because I'm sure that Leon Edwards is still the welterweight king, unless the new rule is that co-main events are five rounds, which is news to me. But this one went all five, and Mohamed really controlled most of it. It didn't seem like Burns had an answer for any of Mohamed's offense, though he was still not able to finish the former welterweight contender. But Muhammad did secure himself the unanimous decision. And then the big one for the bantamweight title closed the show with Aljamain Sterling defending his title against the former champion who technically never lost the belt, Henry Cejudo. Cejudo tried to end this one early and negotiated a quick takedown, but Sterling managed to weather the storm and take Cejudo down a couple of times as well, even landing some vicious knee strikes to the rib and midsection of the former champ. Hudo started to come back in the final round and almost had the back of Sterling, but didn't have much time to work, so Sterling managed to make it out of the round and the fight with his championship still in tow, winning the split decision. I think this at least adds more legitimacy to Sterling's championship reign. Speaking of reigns, the WWE Universal Champion Roman Reigns was not at the Backlash event last week in Puerto Rico, but did make his return last Friday night on SmackDown. He missed a hell of an event, though. It's currently a front-runner, I would say, for pay-per-view or premium live event of the year, whatever you want to call it, and the Puerto Rico crowd was insane throughout. In fact, that might have been the hottest pay-per-view crowd ever, or at least on par with some of those ECW one-night stand events. I think the WWE has been doing a really good job lately of capitalizing on international crowds, especially by placing some of the hometown favorites in the spotlight and also throwing some nostalgia in there, which I'll explain later but this crowd in Puerto Rico was on fire, and I'm sure they'll be back at some point. Opening the show was the Raw women's title match between Bianca Belair and Damage Control's EO Sky. This was a pretty good match, but the highlight of it was certainly the crowd response. I didn't think it was particularly shocking that EO was cheered, but I wasn't expecting Bianca to be booed, and man did she ever get booed. It was like Cena in Chicago all over again, only worse because EO isn't even a hometown favorite. I think they may want to consider turning Bianca at this point, but given the events of SmackDown, it doesn't look like that's happening anytime soon. The backstory of this match was Io constantly trying to target the left arm of Bianca, which was weakened in the early stages. I loved the spot where Bianca tried for a press slam, but couldn't support Io's weight on the injured arm, so she just kind of held her up there with her one good arm. There was kind of a two-pronged effect there, not only were they sticking to the story, but they also emphasized Bianca's strength with that move, which is something that she's been known for. So well done. Bianca delivered a sit-out powerbomb from the top rope, which looked pretty cool. At this point, Bailey and Dakota made their way to the ringside. They immediately got involved, and Bailey actually grabbed hold of Bianca's braid at one point as Io set up for the moonsault. But before she delivered the move, the ref caught Bailey red-handed, causing her to release the braid, which in turn allowed Bianca to avoid the moonsault from Io and hit the KOD for the pin. Some great storytelling in this match. Bad Bunny was shown in the back, mentally preparing for his upcoming match as Rey Mysterio walked in. They were speaking Spanish throughout the segment, so it was kind of unclear what was said. But then all of a sudden, Rey brings in Puerto Rican legend Savio Vega. I have to admit, I popped for this. It was almost like I was an 11-year-old kid watching In Your House again. Sabio had some words of encouragement for Bad Bunny, also in Spanish. Up next was the match that no one could make sense of. It was the one-on-one encounter between Seth Rollins and Omos. I have to say, I think lowering expectations for an Omos match actually worked well in his favor, because this was the second show in a row where he had a pretty decent match, and they seemed to be doing a good job of playing more to his strengths, which is his strength. The big man went on the offensive early by attacking Seth as fans were singing along to his entrance theme, which I think was a brilliant move as it immediately places all the heat on Omos. Omos was delivering all the power moves in this match while Seth was utilizing more of a hit-and-run strategy. Seth finally got the giant down to his knees and went for the stomp, but Omos actually blocked it with his neck strength, which looked really impressive, and the announcers even noted that nobody's ever blocked the stomp. I think the closest was Orton's counter into the RKO. Omos came back with a choke slam, but Seth rebounded and got Omos into position again and hit two stomps back-to-back. He then knocked MVP off the apron, and Omos kicked out. Seth then ascended the ropes and hit a final stomp from the top rope, which I believe is the first time that that's ever been done. And that finally vanquished the Giant. Again, more good storytelling in this match, and I love that Seth had to go above and beyond his usual strategy to defeat Omos. They made both guys look really good here. My one criticism, and this is something that Jimmy Corderas has also pointed out in his ref and rant, is that Omos really needs to pick up some credible wins at some point. Eventually, it's going to get to the point that it's not that impressive to beat him, which shouldn't be the case. Footage is shown from the Backlash press conference where Damian Priest shut down Bad Bunny with Triple H trying to play the role of Dana White, and then Bad Bunny answered back with a slap and bolted right out of there. The triple threat match was next for the U.S. Championship with Austin Theory defending against Bobby Lashley and Bronson Reed. I think of all the matches on this card, this was probably the worst one by default. And I say by default because it wasn't actually that bad. It's just when you compare it to some of the other matches on the show, it wasn't as memorable, for lack of a better word. One of my major critiques of matches involving multiple participants is that usually there are only two people fighting at a time while the rest of the field just casually disappears. But this match was different, as all three were involved throughout the match, and it felt like an actual triple threat. Theory kept trying to work with Reed to double-team Lashley, and Reed hit a very impressive-looking Vader bomb from the middle rope onto Lashley, who was standing on the outside. If anything went wrong there, it could have ended in disaster, but it looked pretty smooth. Theory tried for the A-Town down, but Lashley countered into the Hurt Lock, Theory kicked off the ropes into a pinning combination, forcing Lashley to release the hold, but as soon as he did that, Reed came at him with a tsunami for the nearfall. Reed then misses a moonsault on Theory, and Lashley meets him on his feet with a spear, but then Theory immediately tosses Lashley out of the ring and steals the pin on Reed. The finish was a little cliché, but kind of worked for Theory's character, as he's supposed to be this slimy and sleazy heel who does whatever it takes to win. Also, this is another big win for him on PLE, and I think they're doing a fine job of building him up and making the title mean something again. They're finally trying to erase the memory of the Money in the Bank fiasco from last year. There is a promo for Night of Champions, which will take place in Saudi Arabia in two weeks. Then we went into the SmackDown Women's title match between Rhea Ripley and hometown favorite Zelina Vega. I hated this match when it was first announced, but I'm eating my words because I loved what they did here. Firstly, I love that the challenger entered last and Zelina was draped in the Puerto Rican flag and the announcers mentioned that her family was at ringside and that this match was dedicated to her late father who was a victim of the 9-11 tragedy. I actually remember her mentioning that on a TNA pay-per-view about 10 years ago. I believe her dad was a firefighter. Honestly, I thought this was going to be a total squash match and probably should have been, but they did give Zelina some hope spots in this one. It was kind of book similar to Seth vs. Omos, where Zelina was just kind of playing the cat and mouse game with Rhea in the early stages. She managed to counter a riptide attempt into a Tornado DDT at one point, and followed that up with a 619 and then a Meteora for a close near fall. With Rhea grounded, Zelina bounced off the ropes but caught a vicious kick from the champion on the way back, and Rhea put her away with a riptide to keep the title. After the match, Zelina rose to her feet and was showered with praise from her hometown crowd, and I really love that they let this moment breathe. If Zelina Vega makes it into the WWE Hall of Fame one day, because let's face it, everyone does, it'll be because of moments like this. This is the only moment of her entire career that I will ever remember, and it was fantastic. Well, actually, she did also do that movie with Florence Pugh where she played the role of AJ Lee, but this is her standout moment in WWE by a long shot. I was a little surprised that they chose to go with the Bad Bunny match next, as I thought the crowd might have been burnt out after the last match, but the energy level rose to probably its highest in this match. It was the San Juan street fight between Bad Bunny and Damian Priest. Priest has come a long way since his Punishment Martinez days, and I thought his promos leading into the match were great and he did a really good job of carrying this one. As I predicted, it was kind of similar to the Bam Bam Bigelow and Lawrence Taylor match from WrestleMania 11. It was a much better match, but I meant more from a booking perspective, where Priest just dominated most of it, and then a mistake allowed Bad Bunny to hit some of the big moves. Bad Bunny actually brought a shopping cart full of weapons down to the ring, I guess stealing a page from Raven's playbook, although I didn't see a Frankenstein head in there. As I said, Priest dominated in the early going, He hit south of heaven at one point, but then pulled Bunny up as he made the pin. I love this spot, and again they let the moment breathe. I hope Tony Khan was taking notes. They fought through the crowd at one point, and Priest delivered a broken arrow off an equipment case through a table down below, which looked incredible. Priest then carried Bad Bunny back to ringside, but accidentally kicked the ring post aiming for Bunny. Bunny capitalized and started targeting Priest's knee, and Priest was actually begging off but then he suckered Bunny in and delivered an upkick. Bunny answered back with a low blow, at which point Dominic and Balor came down to ringside. They started to surround Bunny, but then Mysterio raced out, and then the familiar music of Carlito hit, and the crowd went nuts as the former Ruthless Aggression star and Puerto Rico native ran out to help Rey Mysterio and Bad Bunny take down Judgment Day. This is where things got a little chaotic. It was definitely overbooked, but the crowd seemed to love it. As Judgment Day started to retreat, Savio Vega then came out, along with the LWO, and they did further damage to Dominic and Balor. At this point, I forgot that there was an actual match going on. Bad Bunny delivered sliced bread number two and almost landed right on his head, which looked pretty nasty. He then hit the Destroyer to finally put Priest away, and then Carlito, Rey, Savio, and the LWO came in the ring to celebrate with him. As overbooked as it was, I loved this match but I still always cringe when a non-wrestler does something like a Destroyer or Coast to Coast because it stretches the believability and makes it seem like just anybody can be a wrestler. Aside from that, though, this was a really fun match and probably should have closed the show. The six-man tag was up next. It was the Bloodline team of Solo Sokoa and his brothers The Usos against the team of Matt Riddle, Sami Zayn, and Kevin Owens. I still love the whole Bloodline angle and that it continues to develop each week, but I'm struggling to understand why the Usos are supposed to be intimidated by their younger brother. That really never made sense to me. The match felt more like an angle than a match. There was a spot at one point where Jimmy accidentally kicked Jay, and more cracks in the Bloodline Foundation started to show. Sammy was isolated in the heel corner for most of the match, and Jay was yelling at him that the tension in the family is all Sammy's fault. There was another spot where Solo tagged himself in, but then Jay aggressively tagged back in, and just as it appeared that he and Solo would go at it, Solo ended up eating a haluba kick from Sammy. Sammy then delivered a second kick to Jay, but Solo broke the pin. All six guys were in at one point, and Owens hit a stunner on Jimmy, but then Solo dropped Owens with the spike. Solo then turned around and instinctively grabbed Jay, who was standing behind him, and it looked like he was about to deliver the spike, but then Jay pushed him away, and they get into each other's faces again. The end comes where Riddle is cleaning house of the Usos, but doesn't realize that Solo has made a blind tag, and Solo nails Riddle with the Samoan spike for the win. I was actually expecting the Babyface team to win this one, so they could continue the story of the Usos constantly failing, but I do like how Solo was the one to get the pin in this match, so they can kind of still do that. Closing the show was the match between Cody Rhodes and Brock Lesnar. As Brock made his entrance, Cody immediately met him on the floor with a tope, which was more brilliant storytelling, as you want to attack the bigger guy early. Lesnar came back and takes Cody to Suplex City. He then exposed the turnbuckle, but it backfired as Lesnar ended up bouncing off of it, which busted him open. Cody tried to capitalize with the Cody cutter and then hit a pair of crossroads, but the beast kicked out. Cody went for a third crossroads, but Brock countered into an F5 and Cody kicked out. Lesnar then locked on his Kimura submission, but Cody popped his hips and forced Brock's shoulders to the mat while still in the submission, and the ref counted to three. Not a very creative finish, but I guess it was the easiest way to make both guys look good, and it opens the door for a rematch, which has already been announced in Saudi. So that's it for another week. I will be back a little later next weekend to preview WWE Night of Champions, NXT Battleground, and AEW Double or Nothing. So it'll be a big one. Until then, I will leave you with an A, B, C. ya.